Let us worship God. First reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning with verse 16. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Holy God, we give you thanks for these ancient words and for the lives of those who have carried them down throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning that your word would fall afresh upon us this day. Amen. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Holy One is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of God's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God.
Continuation from Luke 4. All spoke well of Jesus and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Here ends the Gospel reading. Good morning to all of you. It is good to be together with you on this day. I want to let you in on a little pastoral secret. There's a particularly sensitive time for us pastors. It's that post-sermon period, those minutes or maybe hours after a sermon when we're feeling very vulnerable. I'll speak for myself. <laughs> My husband, over the years we've been married, has learned to be gentle during this post-sermon period. He's learned this is not the time to offer his critique of the sermon because let's just say whenever this has happened, it has not gone well. As I said, it's a sensitive time because you know, here I am, I've just delivered the word of God, I've poured my heart out, I'm feeling a little exposed, and now I'm standing in the narthex, greeting the congregation as they file by on their way to coffee and cookies. 
For better or worse, to get to the coffee and cookies, you have to pass the pastor. And I'm thinking, are they going to say something about the sermon? Are they going to notice the artful way I wove that metaphor throughout or told the perfect story? Are they going to let me know if I connected with them? I confess to being hyper, hyper aware of people's impressions, and so a particular temptation of mine is this need for the affirmation of others. I'm really trying to work on this. But what I'm inclined to want to hear as I'm standing in the narthex is, amazing sermon, Pastor. That was life-changing. I have never heard such a thoughtful reflection on the Levitical purity codes. Because at that point, I don't want to hear about the weather. I don't want to be asked about some pressing need from the finance committee. I want to know if I connected with you, if you heard the word of God. What I have not had to deal with in that post-sermon period, however, is being run out of town and thrown off a cliff, which is what almost happens to Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Way to go, Jesus. You're probably never going to be invited back to that pulpit. See, if this, if this text had ended just seven verses earlier, the story would have ended so well, right? The story would have ended with the congregation in the narthex congratulating Jesus on their way to the social hour. They'd be talking with Jesus about how they knew his mom and dad, beaming with pride at their now famous native son. And they would be anticipating how this one who has just spoke of good news to the poor would deliver on his promise to them his hometown. It was going so well. They were connecting to Jesus. They were responding so well to the word they heard. Luke writes just seven verses prior to the ending of this text. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. It's every preacher's wish for a Sunday morning to be spoken well of, to amaze people with our gracious words. So how do we go from this to let's throw Jesus over the cliff? What made this Nazareth congregation so angry with Jesus? What did they hear in his sermon that set them off? Okay, and this is, this is really the big mystery to me. Why does Jesus deliberately seem to provoke this response? It's like Jesus takes a stick to this happily buzzing bee's nest and he starts to poke at it. I don't get it. But my guess is that what the Nazareth congregation encountered in Jesus that day was not the prophet they wanted but the prophet they needed. The prophet they wanted would tell them comfortable truth, 
familiar truth that God had a special claim on them, on this one particular people. And while that was certainly true, the fuller, deeper, more difficult truth was that the Hebrew people were blessed by God in order to be a blessing to the other nations. That blessing was not meant to be hoarded and stored away and privately possessed. It was meant to be shared. That blessing was meant to be shared. From Abraham on, that was always meant to be the vocation of God's people. And from Abraham on, the people of God have struggled mightily with that sharing part. Because mostly what we see in the church, what we experience in the church, is the church staying within the lines, so to speak, right? We don't tend to cross that many boundaries. We form congregations out of our own kind. People who mostly share the same social standing, the same racial background, the same political views. Our church communities make sense, but they don't always break new ground. I love that phrase that's often used here at 7th Avenue of the radically inclusive nature of the good news. And I want to say amen, 7th Avenue. That is what the gospel does. It makes radically inclusive communities who flesh out the radical welcome of Jesus, the radical letting go of privilege, the radical transforming practice of learning to embrace the other, whoever that other happens to be. Radically inclusive is the hope, but it's easier said than done. And so there lies the tension for this congregation in Nazareth. They're feeling these two pulls, these tugging pulls. They're pulled between their calling as God's radically inclusive people and their long, long history of resistance to that calling between the prophet they want and the prophet they need. The prophet they want would make Israel great again. Sound familiar? Raise Israel's fortunes, crush Israel's enemies. The prophet they want would bring good news to them, which of course meant bad news for everyone else who happened to be on the other side of God's blessing. The folks in Nazareth had come to hear Isaiah 61 in that way as God's special favor towards them, to the exclusion of others. Which is why they were initially so positive towards Jesus' sermon. As Jesus unfurls the scroll of Isaiah 61, they thought they knew where he was going with that, right? They thought he was going to reinforce their views and tell them something they were already well-positioned to hear. Good news for the captives, yes. Good news for the oppressed, yes. Good news for the blind, yes. Bring it to us, Jesus. We already know this. We 
already want this. But I wonder what was stirring in Jesus to compel him to go further, to take that stick to the hornet's nest and start to disturb things. Prophet that he is, he perceives what be, what's behind the congregation's initial warm response. They think they know Jesus, but they do not. They think they know who the good news is for, but they do not because it, it is so, so far short of the wideness of God's mercy. Jesus is not provoking them just for the sake of being shocking. You know, there are some people like that, right? But Jesus is not one of them. He does not wish to shame his hearers. Rather, he wants to invite his hearers to more, more than they presently imagine, to open up new interpretations of old promises, to stretch their hearts wider. And so rather than conform to what they want in a prophet, Jesus will be what they need. So what does he do? He tells them stories. And we think, stories? What's so dangerous about that? What's so uncomfortable about that? It seems pretty harmless. We can handle a story. So Jesus launches in with not one but two stories from their own history. Remember Elijah, he says? He was a prophet of Israel, and God could have sent him to his own people, which would have made sense. But instead, God sends Elijah to go to a foreigner, an outsider, a woman, a widow. So we're talking a nobody. Elijah, God says, go and live with her. She has nothing, but let her bless you, even as you bless her. Now I'm thinking, Elijah is not finding this arrangement entirely acceptable, right? He has his own prejudice to deal with, his own how does this even make sense kind of question, but off he goes to the widow at Zarephath, who even in her poverty is so generous with Elijah that she offers him shelter and bread. She doesn't have a lot, he doesn't have a lot, but together they have enough. That encounter makes Elijah have to face the uncomfortable truth that this outsider is not an outsider according to God. She is inside the scope of God's mercy. Maybe the congregation at this point in hearing the story starts to shift uncomfortably in their seats. Jesus is messing with very clear lines about who is in and who is out of God's chosen people, erasing those boundaries. That story does not sit well with them. So Jesus tells them another one. You know the prophet Elisha. There were many lepers in Israel, and God could have sent Elisha to any one of those lepers. 
for healing. And you would think the lepers of Israel would have a priority. They should have had the inside track to God's blessing, be the first ones in line. But no. Rather than staying with the program, God sends Elisha to Naaman. Okay, who's Naaman? Okay, unlike the widow at Zarephath, who was a nobody by the world's standards, Naaman is a somebody, a man with standing, a proud man who at first refuses to do what Elisha says to do for his leprosy because he, he thought he was much too important to go and wash himself in a muddy old river, sinking down into some stinky water that was beneath him. Something else you need to know about Naaman? Naaman was the commander of an army from Syria, that awful godless place, one of Israel's fiercest enemies. Elisha going to heal Naaman would be like going to the present-day Syria, to a leader of President Assad's army, and being willing to see his need and his humanity. And that's when the congregation erupts. Jesus has gone too far. He's told them stories from their own history that have held a mirror up to them, revealing their resistance, showing them how far short they have fallen of God's will to bless absolutely everyone, all the nations, the nobodies and the somebodies, their friends and their enemies. No one is excluded from this blessing, no matter how much we in the church draw our lines and live in terms of our divisions. Those divisions will not stand. The good news of God's salvation is meant for all. So I ask you, who are the prophets we need today? Those truth-tellers who invite us to live more deeply into the good news of God's salvation for all, this good news that we have hardly begun to fathom. I think of Brian Stevenson. What a powerful, hopeful voice. Stevenson is the author of Just Mercy, a book about his work as an African-American lawyer defending men on death row who, yes, may have committed crimes, but who are also victims of a justice system that's set up against them, which is a much, much greater crime. He is also the visionary and creator of a museum in Montgomery, Alabama, called the Legacy Museum a museum dedicated to telling the story of slavery in this country and the legacy that it has left. On a recent podcast, Brian Stevenson talked about what motivated him to create such a place. And this is what he said. He said he traveled to Johannesburg and visited a museum there dedicated to telling the story of apartheid 
in South Africa. And he traveled to Berlin, where he said, in that city, you couldn't go two blocks without seeing some monument there to honor the victims of the Holocaust. The same was true in Rwanda. There, in, and in, the, in Germany, there weren't statues of Hitler there, right? That, that wouldn't be conceivable because of the work that Germany had, has done to reckon, to morally reckon with its own past. But he said, here in America, there was no such place because there hasn't been that kind of historical examination, that kind of reckoning. We don't have such a place. But you know what we do have? We still have Confederate statues. And you can take a plantation tour. There's even a museum, he said, dedicated to Atticus Finch, a fictional character in To Kill a Mockingbird, but not one place dedicated to telling the whole tragic, violent story of our country's relationship to slavery. How can we know who we are as a country if we don't look in the mirror and see this part of our story? How can our divisions ever be healed if we pretend slavery never happened? Another prophet I need is Rachel Held Evans. She died in 2019, but her book, Wholehearted Faith, which I just finished, is this honest and loving account of what it meant for her to grow up in the evangelical church, which is also my background. There are things she definitely appreciates about that tradition, which I also share. But before she died, she had begun to raise questions about some of those other things, those assumptions about who was inside and who was outside the people of God and how those lines got drawn in the first place. I actually want to read one section of hers that captured something I feel like I've been trying to say for years. And even though this might not speak to your background, um, I invite us to listen and to let her truth-telling inspire our own truth-telling about the things that have formed us. She writes this. In hindsight, I see that it was my privilege that protected me from the sharpest edges of my own theology. I am white, I am straight. In my younger years, I served as a poster child for the most popular and protected religion in the country, in a town where my brand of faith happened to dominate. Whether out of fear or devotion or some combination of both, I happily played by every one of the rules. But back then, I didn't even know what privilege was, unless you're talking about the privilege of serving as a young and zealous ambassador for Christ. All the while, many of my classmates lumbered beneath the weight of those socially imposed Christian regulations and their accompanying expectations. They hid their sexuality they smiled 
through racist slurs. They minimized their doubts. They kept quiet about their abuse. At my high school in Tennessee, memorizing Bible verses wouldn't get you labeled a weirdo, but being gay might. Now I regret that I didn't understand any of this at the time. So convinced God lived in the boxes I had constructed, I failed to look for God in God's favorite place, the margins. Let me close with a word that Jesus actually begins his sermon with. And a way that word says everything. It is so hopeful and it is so inviting. That word is today. Today. God knows we in the church can make religion about holding on to yesterday or offering the world a vague promise of someday. But the word from Jesus is not yesterday or someday, it is today. After Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 about the good news of God as it is fleshed out among the marginalized, he sits down and says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, Jesus said, a new day has dawned. This word becomes flesh in me and also in you in our flesh. We are living these days with so many questions. As a nation, as a society, will our democracy hold? Will this pandemic ever end? Can anything heal us of our divisions? As a church community, we too have questions about the future and how to envision it. But know this, there is a story at work in the world and in us, a powerful story of good news. People of God, today you are invited to participate in the good news, the ongoing story of God's radically inclusive love. This is an open invitation, so take hold of it and let it take hold of you. May it be so. Amen.
As we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God.
Let us pray. Eternal Spirit, living God, in whom we live and move and have our being, all that we are, have been, and shall be is known to you, to the very secret of our hearts and all that rises to trouble us. Living flame, burn into us. Cleansing wind, blow through us. Fountain of water, well up within us, that we may love and praise in deed and in truth. Amen. And may the grace of God, the peace of Christ, and the power of the Spirit be with those who work or watch or weep this day. May God tend the sick, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, and shield the joyous. Amen. Go in peace.